Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky of Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Dennis Shapiro. Dennis started an investment club in 2019, is the founder of SIH Capital Group and the author of The Alternative Investment Almanac. Welcome, Dennis. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. Gary, first off, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we talked a couple of weeks back, we talked about this idea, and I was really looking forward to this call. So a little bit about me. I started investing when I was actually 14 years old. My oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We're a very brainwashing family where if one of us finds something that we think is good, it becomes like a mission to brainwash the other person into thinking exactly that. So my brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read it. I was a little bit of a hypocrite. I was like, yeah, this guy's probably making more money on his talks than anything else. But it got me started thinking about investing. I think I bought my first asset. It was just a regular mutual fund at that point. So I spent about 20 years in the traditional side, always had issues with getting income and stability from my stock portfolio. And then about 10 years ago, I kind of stumbled on to alternative assets, first the low income housing, then I did more passive stuff. And then I actually went straight into the operating stuff after doing the passive stuff. So it was a long journey here, but it's been really fun. I wish someone gave me that book when I was young. It didn't happen until much later, but certainly there's plenty of time to catch up and do really well. So, but uh, that's awesome that you guys, you and your brother and and your family members straight off on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I actually bought my first property from him. My first rental property. I did the stupidest thing. Best piece of advice I can ever give is never go to your older brother and say, what would you like to sell me? Never do that. Right, right. (laughs) Well, now he owes you for the rest of your life. But I do know that you do focus on affordable housing. And why did you pick that niche? Some would say like the niche actually found me. I was in a situation where I was networking with an individual for about two years. That was actually his specialty. And then we briefly discussed the idea that, you know, if another deal comes about, should we join forces? And that's exactly what ended up happening. He actually purchased from one of the largest affordable housing developers in the country. And what ends up happening is in order to complete the transaction, the state has to kind of give its blessing. And what ends up happening is you actually develop a real relationship with the sellers. It's not like one of those broker-led middleman situations. So he already had this relationship. It took about two, three years. He finally got an opportunity to do a bigger deal, brought me on, and I've been learning ever since. Let's define affordable housing for our listeners because... I think people might just assume it's workforce housing, but it doesn't have to be workforce housing. So why don't you explain that? 
Yeah, I actually think that's a really dangerous assumption to make when you deal with affordable housing. Most affordable housing is actually would, if an investor would look at, would look more like a class B property in North Carolina. They're usually nicer townhouses and they have parking, they have washer and dryers in the unit. So there's a lot of misconceptions with affordable housing. But just to rewind and give the listener some perspective is what happens is when you have a raw piece of land, the cost to build up that piece of land is actually remarkably similar for a class A property and for an affordable housing. What ends up being different is that last mile, the last quality of finishes, the amenities that get put into the property, all of that stuff. So 99 out of 100 times, the developer would never ever willingly go the affordable housing route because they'll just get much more rent by you know putting a nicer pool and now call it a class A and get the $3,000 a month. Why go for the 1000 So what the government realized is they understood that. So in order to incentivize it, they bring down the cost to develop affordable housing and they do it in the form of what's called LIHTC credits, low-income tax housing credits. And these are what these properties tend to be. The good news is these properties are either usually relatively new or they were fully, fully renovated within like a 30-year time period. The LIHTC period usually is a two 15-year tax credit period. So a lot of times the developers wouldn't sell in the first 15 years because they get a lot of tax credits, but then they are open to selling in the second half of the 15 years. And so I've seen a bunch of LIHTC deals come across my desk. And so how would you underwrite it? Because obviously you're able to push some rents because of the caps. And we can talk about the caps next, but certainly you're going to get a discount on the purchase versus buying a typical value-add. What kind of discount are you seeing roughly? And how do you underwrite for that for a LIHTC deal? So underwriting affordable housing is actually pretty fun in a very geeky way. What ends up happening with affordable housing is, so if you're like an affordable housing developer, it's a very different model. We buy from the developers. So our model is focused on operations. And what ends up happening is, you're right, the income is actually capped on what you could raise it to. But what ends up happening is this weird phenomena in the industry is that developers are really good developers and terrible operators. So what ends up happening is we're purchasing these buildings at 80% operating expenses, 90% operating expenses. The last deal we actually looked at two weeks ago was at 110% operating expenses. So because they got so much tax credit, they're not incentivized to really try to keep it at 50-60% of what a 1998 vintage property should be at, right? So what ends up happening is when we underwrite, we may be focused 20% of our time on the income because there are certain things that we could do on the income. But majority of the time, 80% of the time, we focus on bringing down the expenses. So in the most recent case, we brought down that property that I was telling you was 80. Within a quarter, we get it down into the 50s because there's just so much meat on the bone in terms of operational inefficiencies. And out of curiosity on that deal, what were the big expenses that you were able to bring down? So the biggest is payroll. So they had, it was a 50-unit building. They had two full-time employees there. Not once. So like that right away, they had a full-time mains guy on top of that. We were actually able, one of our general partners has his own mains team. So what they do is they'll 1099 a lot of the work that brings down the cost. Then there are other things that it's crazy to even think about. Like for example, they had contracts on the property that were not serviceable. Like they had like an alarm system but the alarm system wasn't hooked up. They had like all these little things where because there was a disconnect between being one of the biggest affordable housing developers with thousands of properties, they're not really looking into the minute details. There's other things like 
housing usually has a waiting list through the housing agency, yet they were paying $5,000 a year for apartments.com subscriptions. So it made absolutely no sense. And then when we, in due diligence, when we looked at the waiting list, and we kind of knew this because my previous partner, I mean, my partner bought from them previously. So they didn't actually have the relationship with the housing to actually get a proper waiting list. So instead of establishing that and taking that work, they turned around and just, hey, I'll just list it on apartments.com. So there were all these little things. Insurance was another big one. They had a portfolio package, but the apartment building that we bought in was in a much safer area. So it didn't get the benefits of being in a safe community and being a nicer, newer property. So it, it was actually, we saved like 10000 just from that. So there would be just these bucket list items. But at the end of the day, I think we caught about $140,000 worth of expenses in a quarter. And that's what we like about the business plan because income, you know, it's kind of a fingers crossed. You know, you're doing your best analysis. It's an educated guess. Hey, you know, these three apartment buildings next to us, they charge $200 more a month. If we put in the same finishes, we should get that. You know, there's a theory, you know, it's usually well-founded if the operator is good at what they do. But at the same time for us, it's going in day one and controlling expenses that we have direct control over. Let's go back to the caps because I think people, you know, may assume that, you know, you're talking about, you know, really small rents, but actually the rents could be, you know, pretty high based on the different levels. So why don't you go into that? Yeah. So there's a funny term, moniker that I actually came up with, or maybe I took it from someone I've never seen it before. It's called small market rent arbitrage. So what ends up happening is the prices are really determined by the HUD, the housing urban development in the country. And what happens is, you know, we have a big country, so they're not going to go and they're not going to determine the prices for every small town in the area. So there are situations where, like in our last purchase, we're about 60 miles away from Philadelphia, but Philadelphia is the closest MSA to our property. And thankfully, because we don't want to do business in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a very tough landlord area, but 60 miles out, it's a very red, very landlord friendly area. So we are actually zoned for the Philadelphia MSA prices. So if we are getting the same rent for a two bedroom, three bedroom as if we were in Philadelphia, but we're 60 miles away in a much more landlord friendly town and in a town that actually the rent is higher than the area itself if it wasn't affordable housing. That's phenomenal. Yeah. You know, I mean, that goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is there's still like you hear affordable housing and it's kind of poo-pooed on, but there's tremendous opportunity and you found a really nice niche. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the only commercial real estate niches, I think, that are left that has a barrier of entry, right? It usually needs some kind of state approval. It usually needs a property management company that has a special division in affordable housing. So all of those little niches we love because we go in with a very limited buyer pool. And then we can exit once the last 15-year period expires, we could actually then exit into a normal buyer pool and go into the, you know, put it with a broker and see how many bids we, we get on it. So we love that type of model. And what kind of debt are you able to put on it? So one of the Fannie and Freddie required mandates is that they actually prioritize affordable housing. A lot of people don't know that. So we actually, there's special products out there just for affordable housing. So we got on our last deal, Freddie Mac affordable housing. It was about 50 basis points less than what we saw on the market. So we ended up with a 3.8% fixed 10-year loan. And that's the other thing. With these things built in the 1990s, at the expense of you know mid-teen, high-teen IRR, 
we underwrite for the 10 years because if we're going to get 3.8% interest and if we're going to get a 1998 vintage property that's in great shape, we're going to say like, hey, maybe we'll exit once the income restriction falls off or we're going to put ourselves in a position to really hold on and benefit well with great cash flow throughout. Nice, nice. So I asked this question of all my guests at the end, you know, what is your asset management superpower? So I will say the simplest answer is really networking. It's not like I didn't start day one and say like, hey, I'm going to be the best affordable housing syndicator out there. But because of my network and then the partner that my partner brought me, now we have like like a superstar team where one of us is really hands-on with investors. One of us is really hands-on with the minor details. And then one of us is really hands-on with the property manager. And we're always looking at the property. And all of that comes back to networking because if you pick the wrong partners, it doesn't matter. The deal will collapse. So networking, getting good partners around you, and then your path is going to find itself. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dennis, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing a ton of value on affordable housing. Can you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and your company? Yeah, absolutely. So if they're interested in getting my book, and by the way, I just got your book, Best in Class. Absolutely love the fact that you talk about asset management with a passion because it's not as sexy as capital raising, but it's probably nine times more important for the success of a deal than anything else. So I appreciate you putting that book together. My book is The Alternative Investment Almanac, where I talk about these different niches that can be found on Amazon. And then my website is sihcapitalgroup.com. You go in there, you get the free bridge version of my book and reach out if you're interested in learning more about affordable housing. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dennis. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week.